Our God and Father, as we bow before you this morning with hymns of praise, with scriptures that strengthen and encourage our faith, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ as we have been instructed and taught as has been modeled in the word for us. We look to him because he alone is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who by the virtue of his life and death and resurrection has accomplished for us a salvation that we could never earn. And only in him do we find life, forgiveness, acceptance, unconditional love, and a thousand other treasures. We are people who are desperately in need of all that Jesus is for us on this day. And so we ask that this great champion who has secured our salvation through his once-for-all sacrifice would come front and center in our eyes today. Give us eyes to see him as he is. Give us ears to hear his voice as he speaks to us through his word. Give us hearts that are humble at his command, that we would repent of all of our sin, turning away from self as well as sin, and turning to him, the living Christ. We ask that as we consider your word from the letter to the Hebrews, that you would give us an understanding that not only would grow our knowledge and love of Christ, but that would give us a way to live in these coming days uh, in such a fashion that Christ would be glorified in all that we say and do. Change us, Lord, as we need to be changed. There are some here today whose faith is weak, and so I pray that they would be strengthened by this holy word. There are some who are discouraged and fearful, some who feel a lethargic uh, sense in their walk with you. Oh, great God, would you give them strength today that they may live as Christ has called them to live. There are others with us today, Lord, some present in this room, some watching via live stream, who have never entered a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Cause this to be the day where they recognize their need of Him, recognizing all that He offers to them, and, and that their faith would come to life in these next few minutes. We think of those who faithfully preach and teach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ up and down this valley, sister churches who are opening the word today in great hope and expectation, hundreds who have gathered, thousands who are listening to the word as it is preached. Oh, Lord God, let, let your word accomplish every divine purpose for which it is being sent. And let it result not just in the growth of organizations that we sometimes refer to as churches, but let it result in the conversion of people created in your image, created to know you, paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it result in transformations of families and marriages, of work ethics and neighbor relationships. Let it result in things that we could never fully imagine at this moment that we pray for it. But, O oh, great God and King, accomplish a mighty work through the preaching of your word on this day. We worship you. We celebrate you. We give our hearts, our minds, our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, it is one thing for us to affirm the reality of the resurrection, but I think so many of us would honestly uh, admit we struggle to sometimes connect the dots between the truth of Christ's resurrection and the ordinary life we're living. 
I mean, in one sense, I would just say, what difference does the resurrection make for ordinary people like you and me? Now, certainly we've touched on some of these things already, but I, I want to ask that even in the context of the letter to the Hebrews. Let me just tell you a little bit of background, because sometimes we come to the Bible and we read its truths, and we might even affirm, you know, with a, a vocal amen or something in our heart says, that, that's a good truth, that's a good principle for life. I, I should remember that, and I should live by that. But we come to the Word of God in a little bit of a cultural vacuum. By that, I mean either we are kind of oblivious to what the first readers of a letter like Hebrews were experiencing and living through, or sometimes we just import our own circumstances and just assume that it all kind of makes sense to us in the way that we live life and understand life. Now, the Word of God is for everyday living. It's for ordinary people just like you and me, but it was not written in a cultural vacuum, and sometimes those cultural circumstances are very helpful in unlocking the power and even personal nature of the message of God's Word. And the letter to the Hebrews, as it appears in the New Testament, is an example of that kind of writing. So let me tell you a little bit about the Hebrews, the recipients of this letter. They were first century Christians, most of them Jewish, as you might expect from the word Hebrew that's included in the title of this book. This book, we believe, was written about 30 years after the resurrection. It's easy for us to just assume that that first century church must have been on fire, and all of those followers of Jesus must have been like the ultimate Christian group, right? Hardly. As a matter of fact, you don't have to be 30 years or 2,000 years beyond the resurrection and, and wake up on a Monday morning and kind of have a sense of like, well, here we go again. And, and is this Christianity thing real? And is it life-changing? And what difference is it making for me today as I go to the workplace or as I take care of those little ones that are always running around my feet or try to transact some of the business or go to the classroom to teach or as a student to learn? About 30 years after the resurrection of Christ, this group of followers, mostly Hebrews, as I said, were actually beginning to feel the cultural pressure and even personal cost of following Jesus. If we had time to read through the entire book, we would find that there are several clues that lead us to believe that these are people living in one of the major urban centers of the first century. Many scholars think that it was Rome. There's no definitive evidence. Could have been Rome, could have been Corinth, Ephesus, one of the other major population centers. But I say that because we live in a major urban area. And, and even those of you who moved out of the city some time back feel like the city is rapidly coming to your doorstep, isn't it? I mean, the real estate scene in Salt Lake is just insane. And so those of you who, once upon a time, any of you buy property out in this area because you thought, yeah, that's kind of country living still. It's close enough where I can get you know, access to the city. But any of you old enough to be in that condition? A little bit of change has come, hasn't it, Sandy? We're not living in the country anymore. So you would relate to some of what this group probably felt as those who were living in a major urban area. There are other little commands and exhortations that appear in the course of this letter. We read the instruction that they should show hospitality to strangers. And that actually was in the context of the Christian faith. 
Because if you were a follower of Jesus and you were traveling to a city and they didn't have hotels and Airbnb and Verbo and things like that, you, you would actually take letters of recommendation from your home church and you would look for Christians. And you would say, could I have a room for a night or two? I mean, can you imagine somebody just showing up in your doorstep today as you've never met and they've got a letter of commendation from some church back east and you're like, really? This is inconvenient? Well, so the letter addresses an issue like that. Also warns them against greed and sexual impurity. And while those are universal temptations, they are particularly common and intense in urban settings. But perhaps the most compelling point of evidence that this is written to a group of city dwellers, as it were, of a highly populated urban areas in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, where we read near the conclusion of this letter, let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for here, that is in this present life, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Following Jesus was not easy and it was not fashionable in that day. And being identified as a follower of Jesus meant that others would likely speak disparagingly of you or insult you outright. There was a reproach connected to it, and that's why the, the writer of Hebrews uses that particular word in that last verse, a reproach connected to following Jesus. If we were to continue reading through the book, we'd find some other specific difficulties that were named. Some of these saints had their material possessions plundered simply because they were followers of Jesus. Some were mistreated, even imprisoned, for the faith, not because they had committed criminal activity, but because someone brought charges against them with a view of their faith. There were diverse and strange teachings in the church related to the use of, of certain foods as a means of spiritual nourishment. And, and so the writer of Hebrews will correct some of that and remind them that there, there's no hidden significance in certain kinds of food when it comes to your relationship with God. And so pressures like these were tempting some of these believers to drift away from the faith. Others were even defecting outright leaving the regular gathering and worship services, perhaps because it was risky or perhaps because life was so overwhelming and they just felt like they had other things to do on a Lord's Day. Those who remain are described with words like these in chapter 6, verse 12, sluggish. Chapter 12, verse 3, weary and faint-hearted, even as having drooping hands and weak knees. I read things like that and I begin to relate in a way saying, I, I can understand that. Do you ever feel sluggish in your faith? Do you ever feel a little weary and faint-hearted in following Jesus? So in recent days, as I was saying, I mean, we, we've read and witnessed some things that are quite alarming and disheartening. People who once seemed to have a vibrant testimony of faith, leaving it all behind, saying, not any longer. I just don't believe the things I used to believe. Like you, we see some of the things being taught in churches around the globe and say this must be similar to what the letter to the Hebrews describes as diverse and strange teachings. There are always false doctrines being introduced to God's church. And it causes us to wonder sometimes, where is God? Some of you say, it's not false teaching that creates drift in my soul it's just the pressure of day-to-day -day life. 
You wanted so much to be here on time this morning, this day of all days, right? I mean, it's Easter, and, and I know some of you have Easter outfits, and you had all these plans and ambitions that the kids would be bathed and fed and dressed, and you imagined that that you would sing resurrection hymns in the car ride over to church and quote resurrection scriptures with joy in your hearts. And after the Easter brunch uh, here at church, uh, you, you envisioned wonderful family gatherings like this, that you would sit on the sofa this afternoon and just talk and share your hearts or take a hike together and enjoy the outdoors or, or perhaps you would find a, a way to spend time with people that you love and enjoy their company, or, or maybe even just a, a spontaneous bike ride this afternoon. And I think, yeah, we all have our Sunday morning fantasies, don't we? Life is hard. It's not always easy to follow Jesus. And that's the reason the letter to the Hebrews is written. Because on many days, we feel more like this than we do like we were singing just a few moments ago. So this letter to the Hebrews is written by a God who understands all of that dynamic and a God who was so concerned for first century Christians, some of whom were drifting away, some of who were departing from the faith, others who were lethargic and sluggish and weak-kneed and and droopy-handed in their service of God. The Lord understands all of that and begins through the author of this letter to address all of those heart needs, but he does it by pointing them to Jesus. That's why one of the most familiar passages in all of Hebrews is found back in chapter 12 where we are commanded to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. There's no hope for you if you look inside, not a lasting hope. There's no hope for you if you look at the people around you. They're imperfect. They're weak. They're destined to fail you because they're not God. For 13 chapters, the letter to the Hebrews rolls through the saving work of Christ, describing how he shed his blood as the once-for-all sacrifice. He died on the cross never to die again in order that sinful people like us might be saved. He is the one that entered heaven's holy of holies, not the earthly temple holy of holies, but heaven's holy of holies with his own blood and completed the work of atonement so that sin-laden, guilt-ridden consciences like ours might be cleansed from our dead works in order to serve the living God. Hebrews reminds us that we are called to lives of faith because without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews tells us that we are to be people who look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That we have in reality come to Mount Zion, a spiritual reality this morning because you say, I don't see it, we're not actually there. No, not at this point, but the writer of Hebrews says in spiritual reality, we have in fact come to the city of the living God and we need to live in gratitude for having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And and as I mentioned just a moment earlier, that's the point where he says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I need to hear that because as much as I love this city where we all make our livings and have settled families, at least part of them, this city is not gonna endure and this city is deeply frustrating and the greatest problem in Salt Lake is not the people I live around, the greatest problem is me. And if you were honest, you'd have to say, I'm the greatest problem here too. 
One of the last things that we read in this book is a benediction, a prayer of blessing, if you will. And I want you to turn to Hebrews 13 now. And if you're using one of the the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, I know at least there's one edition. This will be found on page 1010. And I'm sorry, I did not look up the the other copy of that. But it's a New Testament book. You can see where my Bible is open. It's, It's almost to the back of the Bible, so look for Hebrews and find chapter 13, and I want you to look at at verses 20 and 21 with me, and we're gonna take just a few minutes to walk through this together. As this prayer of blessing is given at the end of this letter, it is marvelous for us, and embedded in the heart of this blessing is the resurrection. And not just the fact of the resurrection, but as we read it, notice that there's a reminder that the same God who acted powerfully to to raise Jesus from the dead is the God who powerfully and purposefully works in people like us. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to just walk you through this and point point out four parts of this verse and then a few uh, subheadings, if you will, under those four main points. Notice, first of all, that it begins with this grounding or founding in the God of peace. It's a blessing that originates in the God of peace. There are six times in the New Testament that God is referred to as the God of peace. This is one of those, very obviously, but when the the Bible speaks of peace, it's not just talking about absence of hostility or in a wartime where warring factions decide to lay down their arms or individuals who are in an argument come to some agreement. It includes all of that, but there's actually a much more comprehensive view of peace. We've been talking about this on several occasions recently here at Gospel Hope Church. The peace that God has in mind and even the peace that this scripture points us to is a wholeness of life. It's the kind of thing where you would actually rise on a morning and you would survey everything from where you live to the relationships around you, to the work you do, to your financial status. You would do a health assessment and if you were experiencing the kind of peace that the Bible speaks of here, you would say everything is in order. Everything is as it ought to be. Now, there are some here today who would say, my life's really good, but I doubt you could say everything is perfectly in order. Do you know why that is? Well, it's because of sin. When God created the world initially, he created it very good. If you read the Genesis account, multiple times in that first chapter, it speaks of God creating by his powerful word, and then God himself gives an assessment at the conclusion of each day. The Genesis account says God saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It's repeated multiple times, and then at the end of the chapter, it says it was very good. So what happened to that? Well, that's where if you read to chapter three, you find out The first man and woman blew it, rebelled against God. And so God's curse came upon the world. But God, even in bringing the curse that he said would come for disobedience, began to make all things new. We just sang that a little bit ago, uh, I think in that last hymn. God will make all things new. Well, 
what the writer of Hebrews is pointing us to is that there is a God of peace, a God of wholeness who is presently at work. And the prayer indicates that sense that we need it, he's got it, and if we invoke that God of peace to work, maybe we can experience more of it. And so here, as one author writes, it reminds us that it is God in whom all our prosperity is centered. There's no well-rounded life that does not depend on him. The expression is especially suitable in view of what the epistle discloses of the condition of the readers. Remember, I told you a little bit about what the Hebrews are going through at this time? Life is hard. Some of them have lost their material possessions. Some of them have been thrown in prison. Others are being threatened in a manner of ways. Where will they find peace? Well, not in their city, not in their circumstances. It's found in this God. So here they are, tempted to go back from Christianity having to be warned of the dangers of turning away from the gospel. They may have had doubts about who their true leaders were, but it is well for them to be reminded that real peace is in God. And so that's why this prayer of blessing begins at that very point. There's no peace with God apart from Jesus Christ. That's why Good Friday, as we celebrated it, is such an important thing for us. You cannot have peace personally apart from Jesus Christ. You you can't reach an agreement with God that would amount to some lasting peace and eternal peace apart from the sacrifice of Christ. But this God of peace has acted powerfully, and that's where in the second part of this uh, verse, you begin to see there is a blessing resting in the God of resurrection. Look at that next phrase. He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. I suppose most of you would say, okay, got it. Um, The resurrection happened. God is displaying miraculous power here. We know that this was not explainable through any other means. But the word brought actually, and, and again, this is written to Jewish people who would have been familiar with the Old Testament, And it might be easy for us to miss it if we read through here too quickly, but for Hebrew Christians in particular, that term brought would have an echo of some really significant events in the Old Testament. In Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, we read, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So in the law, The Old Testament law, it's the terminology of God's redemption. In the Psalms, you see it being used of God's rescue of dying people. And in the prophets, like Isaiah, it is the terminology of God's special leadership. Now, here's the point that that the writer of Hebrews is getting to. This God of peace is portrayed as the one who personally leads our Lord Jesus out of the realm of the dead, but he does it with a view of a relationship to us. God is revealing a relational purpose in the resurrection, and that's found in the next phrase, the great shepherd of the sheep. Well, obviously, the great shepherd refers to Jesus, doesn't it? But don't miss that last little phrase, the shepherd of the sheep. Who are the sheep? Well, they're the followers of Jesus. They're people like those Hebrew Christians living in one of the major urban centers of the first century who are struggling with a sense of of 
of coming persecution, of having their goods plundered, as the writer of Hebrews said, of, of uncertainty as to what the future would hold. They're 30 years beyond the resurrection of Jesus, and probably like many of those first century Christians, were waiting for the return of Christ, because he promised it, didn't he? Well, you can understand how their faith would begin to weaken, and some of them would feel uh, a, a little sluggish in their day-to-day living. But he's the shepherd of the sheep. Again, if, if we had time to read through Isaiah 63, that would be a study in and of itself. But you would find a, a really beautiful portion where there is a reference to Moses, the greatest Old Testament prophet who ever lived, being used by God to shepherd Israel. And some even think that this might have been the very passage that the author of of this letter to the Hebrews had in mind when he was using some of this very terminology because in Isaiah 63, God speaks of leading his people by this particular shepherd Moses and he does it to make his name glorious. Here's the point. The fact that God brought again from the dead the great shepherd is an indication that he is also working to bring the flock with this great shepherd. And that includes people from every generation, from every culture, from every nation. It speaks of a personal relationship. When I was in high school, I had the privilege of traveling with a group of juniors from multiple high schools in our area at the invitation of our congressional uh, representative, Carol Campbell. Uh, It was a great trip. It was a really special time, and, and he had lined up special tours for us in Washington, and, and there were educational tours, and, and there were all kinds of, of special meals and some receptions that were planned, and even a night of entertainment at, at one of Washington's you know, uh, theaters. And um, I, 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 don't, I didn't take time to go back to see if I could remember the name of the play, but um, you know, it, there were some top-name actors uh, who were on the stage that, that night. And so it was four days of privilege in Washington simply because of this congressman. And we were let into buildings and, and into rooms that were normally closed off because of our connection to Carol Campbell. And in a sense, all we had to say is, uh, we're with him. And, and they were like, okay, come on in. They didn't care who we were so much as we were with him. That's because he carried the kind of authority in a place like that that's necessary to get into some of those back rooms and hallways and, and places that aren't normally open to the public. And there's a sense here in this letter to the Hebrews that because of that personal association with Jesus, you are destined for your own resurrection. It's why Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You're not going to enter heaven if you're not in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You may have the best of intentions, just like if I had separated myself from, from that high school group in Washington, D.C., and just tried to say, well, I'm, I, I live in the 4th Congressional District of South Carolina, and, and Carol Campbell is my representative. I, I know about him, but they would say, sorry, show me the credentials. But to be able to say, here are the credentials that prove I am with him. I'm authorized by him to be here at this moment. That's what gains you entrance. And my friend, there is no entrance into heaven apart from Jesus Christ. It's why Peter preached only a few months after the resurrection that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. 
Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. So here you see the God of peace who acted to bring Jesus from the dead doing it with a view that there's a flock that is directly connected to, related to him. The question for you personally today is, are you truly one of God's flock? Are you truly in relationship with Jesus Christ where you would have the confidence that you could enter heaven by virtue of that relationship? Well, there's another aspect. Look at that next phrase. And this is really significant because God ratifies an eternal agreement in the resurrection. Let's work backwards. Take that word covenant for just a moment here. A covenant is simply an agreement between two parties. And the, term of this, the terms of this covenant are actually recorded back in Hebrews 8, verses 10 through 12. Turn over there. If your Bible is open or your screen is up, you can flip back a page or scroll back uh, just a screen or two, and you'll see some things here. Now notice in Hebrews 8, verses 10 through 12, that the Lord is speaking, and he speaks of this covenant that he will make with the house of Israel after those days. And a little sidebar, he's actually quoting Jeremiah 31. But notice three things that he does. First of all, he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Second of all, he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then as you continue reading all the way to verse 12, he says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So here's an agreement, a covenant that has three important parts. It's an agreement that the Lord himself will do three things. And the first is to transform the hearts of his people. That's what he's talking about when he says, I'll write my law in your heart. You and I were not born by nature law keepers. No, by nature we're law breakers. And that's why parents who are doing their job discipline you when you break the law, whether it's you know, house law or even civil law. You need a new heart. And God's saying, I'm gonna work in a way that changes your heart. The second thing he, he mentions there, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Well, that speaks of entering into a special relationship. And then thirdly, the forgiveness of sins. When God says, I'll remember their sins no more, it doesn't mean that he you know, scrubs the memory banks of his mind. You, you can't be God and forget things. That's part of that omniscience. He knows everything. But when he says, I'll remember their sins no more, what he means is, I, I'm not gonna actively recall those things. Oh, the memory is there. He could access it, but it, this is the beauty of the agreement. He's saying, I'm not gonna do that. Now, now why would this covenant unfold this particular way? Well, he says back in, in Hebrews uh, 13, if you go back there and look with me, it's an eternal covenant by the blood. That is by virtue of the blood. So th this is why we have underlined that little portion in red. By the blood of the eternal covenant. A forever relationship with God is being established by the shedding of Christ's blood. That's how he can write the law in your heart and enter into relationship with you and remember not your sins against you anymore. Forgiveness of, with God is not by virtue of your sincerity or mine. Forgiveness with God is not by virtue of your good works or your generosity or any other thing that you might do. Forgiveness with God is by virtue of the blood. And God is resurrecting the great shepherd in order that millions of others would be resurrected too. That's really good news for people whose faith is faltering. 
that's really good news for people who say, I don't have the strength to, to do this any longer. It's not simply a promise of life after death, but there is something else that God is doing here. And this prayer captures a desire of God himself to bless us in a work that he does. Did you see verse 21? This, we're now finally to the real verb of the prayer. So the subject is the God of peace, verse 20. What's, our, what's the real simple statement of this prayer? That the God of peace would equip you. So the writer of this letter is mindful of all that the Hebrew Christians are going through, and he says, this is my prayer, that the God of peace would equip you. And that idea of equip means to establish or set up or prepare. It even has the idea of restore, but of, of bringing a person to the place where they are in a position to do exactly what they need to do. They have everything that would be necessary for the doing of it, and they could do it with a clear heart and clear mind, to be at peace. And did you notice? Equip you with everything good that you may do as will. I'm struck by the fact that God is working from the inside out, first writing his law there, transforming us, bringing us into relationship with him, then with a view that after we have been remade on the inside, we would begin to do the kinds of things that align with his will. It sounds like he is restoring what we lost in the fall in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Exactly. That's part of what the resurrection signals, that this God himself is at work in a mighty way. And he does this with a view that we would do his will. That's part of the heart transformation because by nature we're rebels. But now there's a change in us. And as part of the work of salvation, God is preparing us and equipping us for lives of meaningful service to him. So let me just interject this. As you return to the workplace tomorrow morning, whether that be in an office complex or in your minivan, because some of you pretty much live your lives working in a minivan, don't you? And I'm talking about those minivans that have, you know, goldfish ground into the carpet and chicken nuggets squirreled away in places where you won't find them for another two, three years maybe. Um, you can return to whatever workplace is before you in the confidence that God raised Jesus from the dead in order to equip you with everything necessary to do his will. It's not just a great spiritual reality that he wants you to affirm and give a head nod to on Sunday, but he actually wants you to carry uh, this, this great power and, and sense of relationship and confidence that he is at work in order that you would be the person he wants you to be and do the kinds of things he wants you to do. We're tempted to, to find the equipment for life through a social influencer, aren't we? But there's no social influencer out there who will equip you in the way that God equips you. Corporate office is not gonna equip you in this particular way. Our president is not gonna equip you in this particular way. Dr. Fauci isn't gonna equip you in this particular way. Only God has the power and purpose to do this kind of work. And that's the next thing that the, the author of Hebrews says, first of all, that you may do his will, but notice that next phrase, working in us. Isn't it beautiful that God doesn't simply command you to go do these things, but he actually works in us. And he is at work in us so that we would do those things that are pleasing in his sight. I think that's a parallel thought to that you may do his will. I had, in my very first job, when I was 14 actually, 
Uh, I worked in the dining hall of the, the Christian university that my parents uh, worked at full-time. I worked for $1.65 an hour, which at that point, hey, it was like you know, money in my pocket, and it wasn't quite minimum wage, but I wasn't 16 yet and all of that, and, and uh, it was tedious work. I can't say that I really enjoyed it cleaning pots and pans and, you know, back hallways and grease traps and all kinds of things. A lot of it was just kind of nasty work. I had several different managers who oversaw the, the work crew that I was a part of. And, and all of them were nice guys, but there were two guys out of, I don't know, probably four or five at that particular point that I loved being scheduled under because those managers would get in there and roll up their sleeves and work alongside you. It didn't matter how menial the task was, how smelly the work was, uh, they were right there. And, and you lost sight of the work that you were doing, the task that was before you, in part because because the relationship that was unfolding. And one of those managers took such a personal interest in several of us as 14 and 15 year old boys that years down the road we would see him and we'd still love to talk and interact and spend time with him. And you know, God enters into a relationship with us not, not in a similar way, but far beyond that. It's not simply that God says, here's your task list for the, for the day, do this stuff and don't do that stuff, got it? I'll see you in eight hours. No, he's a God who enters into the very thing he's commanded you to do. And part of, the, part of the glory of the resurrection, it's a reminder that if he worked to powerfully bring Jesus out of the grave, he's powerfully at work in you to help you do the very things he's commanding you to do. So working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Then the last phrase, through Jesus Christ. And it, it should not surprise us if we read through the whole letter, it's all about Jesus from start to finish. God is working in our lives through Jesus. Christ is the mediator of this grace and power of God as he shepherds this new covenant community. Christ is present. That's why we're always looking to him. And when you really begin to understand and grasp not just the truth of what Hebrews 13 is telling us, but the very personal nature of how God enters into our lives, enter into our worlds, and you can understand why the blessing concludes with that thought of resulting glory for God. It's good for us to praise God for his powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ and affirm the doctrine. But more than that, this doctrine has been given that you and I might live differently. A year ago, we weren't able to gather for Easter. That was disappointing to so many of us. And there's still a number of, of us who wonder what the future holds, and some really, I mean, and let's face it, the last year what we've experienced, not just nationally but internationally, has changed a lot about the world we live in. It'd be very easy to just cave into all that and say, well, you know, it's a new day and life's just gonna be hard, it's gonna be different from this point forward. It, it would be easy to let that become the, the dominating uh, reality of life, but God comes on this morning and says, no, 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 no. The circumstances of, of the first century church that this letter was written to could not and must not create the reality that they were living in. God is calling them back to Jesus lest they drift away or even abandon the faith altogether. And you know what? Some of you have drifted in the past year. Some of you may even be teetering on the brink of saying, you know, this Christianity thing following Jesus, I am not sure it's for me. Listen, don't lose heart. Don't lose sight of Jesus. He is working. I don't know how many more Resurrection Sundays we'll have on planet Earth. And neither do you. 
This could be the last one that you're alive to celebrate. Death could come for you in the next months. Jesus could return this calendar year. I'd love to know the full story of how many of those Hebrew Christians that this letter was written to persevered in the faith to the end of their days. The ones who did look back on the suffering and difficulty, even the confusion and fearfulness, and say, oh, our lives were so short. If we could have only fully understood then what we know now, we would have lived differently. The God of peace is at work. He is, in fact, making all things new. Slowly, incrementally right now. But it's gonna climax just as he has planned. And the resurrection is the powerful statement of that truth. So while we sing praises to God for the resurrection, and that's good and right, God's desire is that we would also walk out of this place serving him in obedience and faith, trusting that he is at work in us personally, that he is working through Jesus Christ to to transform us. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, you are the remedy to our spiritual sluggishness and faint-heartedness. You are the one alone who has power to bring the great shepherd from the dead. And you alone have the power to bring all of his sheep from the dead. You are the one who equips us and restores us. And your work is our consolation. And your word is our correction. Would you give us grace to live in resurrection power and resurrection reality? And for those who are present, who do not know you intimately, who've never felt the power of your cleansing, your forgiveness, who've never known the confidence and assurance of this gift of eternal life, let this be the day. Draw near to us, great God, as we draw near to you. Let your power, your resurrection power, work mightily. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.